You're listening to Greater L.A. on KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiotakis. Are you ready yet? You got your boots and hat on? We gotta go. We don't want to be late. We've got a night of boot scooting boogieing for us at a spot that's a little more than your usual honky-tonk. We're at Club Bahia on the east side of Echo Park in Los Angeles at a Monday night line dancing event called Stud Country. Uh, it's the queer church of line dancing, so there's a really strong queer community here. Stud Country is a weekly dance party where folks of all genders, sexualities, and dancing abilities are carrying on a legacy of queer line dancing in a city where you'd least expect it. KCRW's Danielle Chiraguayo recently hit the dance floor, and she dozy does from here. On a Monday night here, you're bound to see three things. Cowboy boots, tight blue jeans, and a whole lot of fringe. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I got my snake boots on right now. Uh, had to match that. And I'm wearing all brown in my uh, broke back mountain jacket, representing really hard. I have a leather jacket with some fringe that's been passed around my friend group over many years. <laughs> Came to me when I was living in Texas. Felt right for the night. Uh, so these are my cowboy boots that I got as a graduation present uh, from high school. Blue tips with some red sort of petals with a brown base. And then going up the calf, you have an off-white with birds and flowers and hearts with arrows. These folks are strutting their best cowboy ensembles on the dance floor at Club Bahia, a discotheque that's hosted Latino dance parties for nearly 50 years. But tonight, instead of cumbias and salsas, country music is blasting through its speakers. Wherever you turn, there's neon. Think green palm trees and hot pink trimming, disco balls hang from the ceiling, glittering in the spotlight above the dance floor. And tonight is Oklahoma native Maddie Wager's first time out at Stud Country. There's a part of me that's like, I should know how to line dance at this point. This is, this is the culture that's in Oklahoma, but I think I really pushed it away because of the culture, that it's not super queer friendly and it's a pretty, it can be an intense environment. Uh, if you're not a straight person. Maddie says traditional line dancing spaces are not always a safe place for folks that are part of the LGBTQ community. It's funny because, yeah, my friends have been like, let's go line dancing. And I'm like, damn it, I should know this. But then I'm like, no, this is going to be a reclaiming moment. I'm going to go out and learn how to line dance. And now? I'm listening to the music. I'm hearing the stomps. I'm seeing the steps that I would see in Oklahoma, but with a very different clientele. And now seeing a bunch of fabulous queer cuties out here doing the same steps, the same music, it's really filling me with joy. Nearby, Amanda Montel was having a similar experience. And there's something fun about the irony of this being a type of dance that is like owned by communities that aren't always super friendly to queer people. Um, and, you know, we're all in our, like, low-slung jeans and belt buckles and cowboy boots, and nobody can tell us to get out. For others, like Houston native Jasmine Smith, stud country is a little taste of home. It's a nostalgic feeling of just hearing the music, doing the line dances. Like, we heard our aunt's favorite song. Like, it's, it just feels good. It feels good to be a part of a crowd. But the thing about stud country... It's not all transplants and young Angelinos looking for community. 
It also brings out an older generation who remembers a time when L.A. wasn't the liberal bastion of acceptance that it is today. 81-year-old Anthony Ivancic has spent the better part of his life dancing. Folk dancing, polka, waltz, you name it. And during the early 80s, after the movie Urban Cowboy came out, he saw country dancing take off. And uh, we were coming out of the disco days, and uh, I was burned out on disco. And the AIDS epidemic came along, and here was a, a new form of dancing that wasn't disco, where the spaces pulled apart and you really weren't dancing with somebody necessarily. And you could actually touch somebody <laughs> and do some dancing. Today, Anthony says he loves seeing new generations embrace line dancing and seeing both straight and queer folks come together in a safe space. It's a far cry from what he experienced decades ago. I mean, I've been arrested out of a bar before, so uh, not a pleasant experience. And it's nice to see that society has come around and changed. Line dancing for queer people isn't actually new in L.A., just new to Echo Park. Stud Country's founders got this party started specifically to replace a different everyone's invited dance party they all loved. Over at Oil Can Harry's, a Studio City gay bar that closed during the pandemic after 50 years in business. It was a gay dive bar honky-tonk, basically, which was checked several boxes for me. Sean Monahan grew up in the Bay Area, but line dancing was a fixture of his childhood. So when he got to Oil Can Harry's, he'd found his people. Uh, I saw all these men doing couples dances together, and, and it was so beautiful, and it was so loving, and everyone was so nice. Everyone wanted to talk, and everyone suddenly, I just felt like I was seen and cared for, like, immediately. After Oil Can Harry's closed in 2021, leaving a Texas-sized hole in Sean's life, he and his friend, Bailey Salisbury, tried offering online Zoom dance parties, which Sean said was weird. But they had an idea for an in-person and socially distanced shindig. We set up this uh, parking lot tailgate party, and we broke into the Fry's Electronics parking lot. Rest in peace, Fry's. But you know how there's that iconic Fry's building with the flying saucer that's crashing into the building? <laughs> we broke into that parking lot. We used a, a bolt cutter to break into the parking lot. And we brought a sound system and we just had like a midday to sunset line dancing party. And it was so much fun and it was so cool. And From there, the duo started hosting pop-ups at small bars, dance studios, and wherever else they found a space. Then a friend recommended Club Bahia. And Michael, the owner, answered and said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> Club Bahia has been home to Stud Country since October. Their time there is limited. The property was purchased by a real estate firm. And there's no telling when word might come down that they've got to close their doors. Until then, Sean and his stud country flock are determined to keep the dance party going for as long as possible. And hey, maybe I'll see you there sometime. For KCRW, I'm Danielle Chiriguayo. Keep my heart from breaking if it's only-
All right, still to come, we're going to slow it down a little. If you go online or see a sign that reads tortoise rescue, well, you're hoping the best care is taking place for the animals taken in. For one rescue in the Mojave Desert, that wasn't the case. You know, I, I can tell you how it ended. I don't know how it started or what the intentions were back then, but from everything we've heard from people in the community coming forward now telling their stories of their experience with the rescue, it doesn't sound good. The sobering tale of a shelter and rescue in Joshua Tree, where at least one good Samaritan found dozens upon dozens of large and small tortoises, either dead or suffering. But there's so much more to this story, even some good news, too. And that's yours on the other side of this. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with Greater LA on KCRW, I'm Steve Chiotakis. This is a story about desert tortoises, many of which make their home right here in Southern California. They're not very big. They're about a foot long, fully grown. They live to be about 50 to 80 years old. But in some areas since the 1980s, their populations have declined by as much as 90%. In the Mojave Desert, they're listed as a threatened species. There are places that specialize in taking care of these tortoises. One of them was a place called the Joshua Tree Tortoise Rescue. Well, back in December, a woman named Amy Keeler, a nurse living in Yucca Valley and a tortoise lover, visited that rescue and was greeted with a terrible sight. A lot of dead tortoises and a few still alive that needed rescuing from the rescue. Well, that sad situation is one of the low points of a huge roller coaster ride that is chronicled in a piece out now in the Desert Sun newspaper. Amy Keeler is here to tell us about what happened. Hi, Amy. Hi, Steve. And James Cutchin is the reporter who chronicled that story in the Desert Sun. Hi, James. Hi, Steve. Amy, I want to start with you, and, and would you mind taking us back to that day when you first arrived at the Joshua Tree Tortoise Rescue? What what did you find? Uh, yeah, that's 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 tough. Um, you know, obviously showing up to a tortoise rescue, uh, I'm not expecting to find a bunch of dead tortoises, but that's that's mostly what I found. Um, many dead desert tortoises um, and a handful of um, dead, you know, very large sulcata tortoises. Um, you know, pieces of shell, pieces of bone buried tortoises, liquefied tortoises, um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, basically a nightmare. Liquefied tortoises. Yeah. When I read that word in the story, in James's story, I, I couldn't even imagine what that, what that meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, um, a large sulcata that weighed probably about 100 pounds inside of a doghouse that had no roof. Um, these tortoises, sulcatas, they don't hibernate and they require a heat source and proper shelter year round, which these didn't have. And uh, it, it had died not too long ago and was liquefied. And 
There was another large sulcata right next to it with its head buried in the leg cavity of the liquefied one. Um, And it it smelled pretty bad out there. Oh, man. James, tell us a little bit about the Joshua Tree Tortoise Rescue and why Amy found it in the state it was in. Sure. Um, So the the very beginnings uh, of it are are a little bit hazy. Uh, I think it uh, seems like it might have began uh, a bit uh, informally. Um, the, The date that they you know, tout on their, their website, which has been deleted and, and some other places is 1997. But uh, it was started by a individual named Ray Packard sometime uh, before the mid-2010s. Um, Packard passed off control of the, of the rescue to a woman named Heidi Saunders and her husband. Um, Heidi's daughter was involved in, in some capacity and they operated it. They appear to have moved it several times uh, to, to different locations around the high desert. Uh, how the animals were, were treated uh, at their rescue there, the, the Joshua Tree Tortoise Rescue uh, in the past uh, is disputed. Um, there was an investigation uh, against Heidi Saunders in 2016, 2017 by the Department of Fish and Wildlife the investigation was uh, undertaken following reports of mistreatment of the animals. She ended up only being uh, charged with five counts of illegally possessing a desert tortoise. Um, you have to have a permit to possess them. It's, it's not really very difficult to get the permit. So it's kind of unclear why you, why you wouldn't, but you have to provide some information like how you obtain the animal and, and things like that. But uh, that case um, kind of fizzled out. Uh, there were some people who were knowledgeable about that case that said that she uh, might have gotten off through some legal maneuvering. But uh, there wasn't a lot of hard evidence about what really happened with that. It's sort of this, this gray area. Amy, you, you first went to the rescue because a co-worker of yours was, was friends with Heidi Saunders. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And she got really sick. She was in and out of the hospital for a couple of years, right? Yes, that's my understanding. And then she sadly passed away from COVID. Yes, in October of last year, 2022. So what was it that the coworker of yours said to you when that coworker told you to go and check this place out? Well, initially it was back in August. She uh, talked to me in the break room um, at work and asked me if I'd heard of the Joshua Tree Tortoise Rescue and uh, told me about Heidi, who was sick and was probably going to die, and asked if I would be willing to take 100 to 200 healthy desert tortoises in March when they come out of brumation and 10 to 15 very large sulcatas. So at the time I agreed, uh, my plan was to work with the California Turtle and Tortoise Club and, you know, come March, have them distributed properly. And then found out um, December 10th from my coworker that um, Heidi's daughter had told her that several were dead on the property and there was a bad smell. Mm. So um, we made plans to go out, you know, pretty immediately the next day. Is it because, and, and James, I'll ask you this question, is it because of her illness that the tortoises were sort of left in this state? I mean, what happened? 
Yeah, so it's uh, obviously with a, with a situation like this, it's it's a little hard to be crystal clear. But uh, it, it seems like uh, from uh, Amy's coworker who knew the former owner that uh, her her illness certainly played a role in, in this. Um, as she was in the hospital, care of the the animals seems to have fallen to her her husband, and for whatever reason, it doesn't look like he undertook that care. Um, the animals, by the time that, that uh, Amy found them, the, the, the state that they were in, there, ha- there had to have been some neglect going on for some time. But then after that happened, her husband took his own life, right, James? Yeah. Uh, then that actually happened uh, shortly after Amy went and, and discovered that horrible situation at the tortoise rescue. Uh, it's impossible to know, uh, you know, what motivated him to do that. But uh, Amy's co-worker who, who knew the family well um, seemed to think uh, the tortoise rescue situation probably played at least, at least some role in that. He didn't leave a note or anything? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Amy, how are the tortoises now, the ones that you did manage to rescue? So three desert tortoises died um, shortly after the rescue. They're currently in my kitchen freezer. Um, And many have been fostered or adopted out to reliable reliable homes. I still have seven. And, you know, they're they're all still sick. They all still uh, have respiratory illnesses. Um, I'm still administering antibiotics and fluids into one, doing dressing changes on a shell that had uh, rotten and gotten infected. So, um, yeah, they're 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 hanging on. They're not gaining any weight. Um, they they were severely underweight, but they are eating. So um, that's a good sign. What what do you do if you want to maybe adopt one of these tortoises? Um, are you able to do that? Can people do that? Because there they are needing homes, right? Sure. So sulcatas, um, you know, you can adopt those without a permit. Uh, they do need a lot of space because they can grow to be 100 pounds or more. And they don't hibernate, so they need a heat source all winter long. For desert tortoises, though, um, in order to to keep one and legally possess it, you must get a permit that... Um, is issued by Fish and Wildlife that James had spoke about earlier. It's not that hard to get, but somebody interested in a desert tortoise should do their homework and um, look into you know all that goes into caring for them because it might not be as simple or straightforward as people might think. Um, and you know you shouldn't have a swimming pool. You have to have proper fencing around your yard. They don't just they don't eat lettuce which is um, a common misconception. So they are pretty complicated animals to keep. So um, definitely the homes that these tortoises have been fostered or adopted out to have been very strongly vetted with home visits, you know, an interview. And then, you know, once they pass for people that have adopted them, um, they have permits issued. So they legally possess these animals at this time. James, you mentioned there were some legal charges that she sort of wiggled her way out of, right? Um, are there any more outstanding with the daughter, with with the other folks who were connected to this so-called rescue? 
Uh, yeah, so at this time, uh, there are not. I spoke with representatives of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and uh, San Bernardino County Animal Control, who were both contacted about the, the situation um, by uh, Amy and a, another woman that she was working with. They said that they looked at the, the rescue properties and um, didn't find uh, evidence of mistreatment. Um, the date that they looked at them was uh, a little over a week um, from the, the date that Amy saw the property. So uh, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, the representative who oversees Riverside and San Bernardino counties told me that with both of the owners, uh, the primary owners of the rescue dead, um, Saunders and, and her husband, um, if if they were the primary caregivers, uh, there's not much that they can do. So that was their position on it. Um, as far as what they what they should be doing, um, I know Amy uh, and some other people have a you know a pretty strong opinion about their their uh, performance on that. Uh, but I will uh, leave her to speak of that. Sure. Amy, do you want to um, speak about it, that? It's or? been pretty upsetting and disappointing, uh, considering the 2016 case that James spoke about. And the numerous complaints uh, that came in over the years to California Department of Fish and Wildlife regarding this rescue from the living desert in Palm Springs, from members of the California Turtle and Tortoise Club, from members of the community, um, this was a known operation to Fish and Wildlife. Um, so when I came forward with these allegations and you know with this evidence, it, it should have been more than enough for them to act. And the fact that they haven't is just completely mind-boggling. What do you make of this, Amy, as we wrap up? Is it some folks who wanted to do something good that just they couldn't handle and they didn't want to admit that they couldn't handle it, they didn't have the money for it, they didn't have the space for it, and this is what happened because they didn't want help? But what happened here? You know, it's hard to say. Uh, it may have started well-intentioned, but, you know, one thing I can say is they were fundraising. The daughter was fundraising for the Joshua Tree Tortoise Rescue a week after I got the tortoises. So at that point, there was no rescue. So that, to me, is just a sign of fraud, fundraising for something that doesn't exist. Their website had an active donation button that linked to PayPal um, that was active as recent as last month. So, you know, I, I can tell you how it ended. I don't know how it started or what the intentions were back then, but from everything we've heard from people in the community coming forward now telling their stories of their experience with the rescue, it doesn't sound good. I want to thank you both for, for coming on and talking with us about this. Again, pretty complex story. Uh, James Cutchin, who reports for the Desert Sun. Amy Keeler, uh, the tortoise lover and nurse who's taking care of uh, at least seven of them um, for now. Thank you both for joining us and, and talking about it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. And by the way, Amy not only spent countless hours helping the tortoises, but she's also spent a lot of her own money as well. And vets have spent a bunch of time as well on these tortoises. And she has a GoFundMe page, and we'll post a link to that on our website, kcrw.com slash greater LA.
That's it for today. Tomorrow, a group of Ukrainian filmmakers have spent months here in L.A. to make art and to talk about their country at war, hear their story. Also, get ready for the rain. Stormwatch, L.A. Heavy downpours, low elevation snow. So what about all that water? Can it get captured to be used later? That's also tomorrow. What's on your mind? The rain? Anything else? Share your thoughts with us. Maybe you have a story idea? Do that, too. KCRW.com slash GLA. And, of course, get the podcast while you're there. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Jody Adler, Sue Margulies, and Christian Bordall all helped assemble this evening's episode. I'm Steve Chitakis. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the ear. Have a great night.